My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Cane Bay and uh, excited to share with you this morning as we continue our study in 1 Timothy. Uh, when I was in college, I, or I took a, a public speaking course. And one of the things they tell you in public speaking is that uh, public speaking is one of the greatest fears that uh, humanity or society has. How many of you are terrified of public speaking, like speaking in public, speaking in front of people? Okay. How many, of you, how many of you, the only thing you're more terrified of than public speaking is raising your hand in a crowd of people? Anybody? No? Okay. A few of you. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Public speaking. It was a great course. Uh, I learned a lot in there, but one of the things that we got to do is we got to listen to great speeches. And there have been some incredible speeches down through the ages, specifically great American speeches. And if we started to think about some of the great American speeches that we have heard or read um, you, you come across some incredible speeches. Uh, I think about uh, the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln, four score, seven years ago. Or you think about uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, after uh, Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. He says, December 7, 1941, a day that will live in what? Infamy, right? Then JFK at his inaugural address, ask not what? What does he say? Ask not what? That's exactly right but what you can do for your country. And if we go down through, we find a lot of great American speeches, but I believe that there's one greatest American speech, one speech that I believe changed things in American culture. And this morning, before we start, I'd like for you to see that speech in its entirety. Thank you. Thank you. I came here tonight, and I didn't know what to expect. I seen a lot of people hating me, and I didn't know what to feel about that, so I guess I didn't like you much none either. During this fight, I seen a lot of changing. The way you felt about me and the way I felt about you. And here, there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. So what I was trying to say is if I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. It's a speech from the end of Rocky IV. Anybody seen Rocky IV? Yeah. Un- little known fact, that speech actually ended the Cold War. I don't know whether you knew that or not, but it finished it off. Who knew? I love the last part where the guy just stands up kind of reluctantly, you know, and he's just like, Glad. I didn't know that that's all it took to end communism. But that speech at the end of Rocky IV is kind of the moving part of the moment where Rocky stands and he says, if I can change, you can change. Everyone can change. And it's kind of this moment uh, that the film has been building towards. And this morning, interestingly enough, 
as we get to our section in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, for all intents and purposes, Paul is kind of saying the same thing. He's saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us as the church, if I can change, you can change. Everyone can change. And this morning, what I want to unpack from the scriptures and from this last section of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is this idea that it's only the gospel, only the gospel has the power to transform guilty sinners into guiltless saints. Only the gospel has the power to transform guilty sinners into guiltless saints. So if you have your Bible this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to finish up, start in verse 12. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. If you just stop by the connection table on your way out, uh, we have a Bible that's our gift to you. If, also, if you have your smartphone or iPad or tablet, you can follow along. If you have the Version app, just click on live events. You'll have all of my notes right there. All the stuff will be on the screen behind me. However you choose to engage this morning with the scripture, we hope that you would follow along with us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that, you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul winds up this chapter of 1 Timothy talking a little bit about the same thing that he talked about at the beginning, about the false teachers. But before he does that, he walks through this incredible section of saying, Jesus has saved me, and here's why. There's, there's three sections, I think, in this verse. First, Paul talks about transformation. And then he talks about celebration. And finally, he talks about confrontation. So I want to unpack those three things this morning from these eight verses at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Transformation, celebration, and confrontation. So let's look at the first part of the scripture together. The first part, Paul talks about his transformation. And at first he talks about the source of his transformation. You see, Paul was not always Paul that we know. You see, Paul had been transformed. He'd been changed by Jesus. And at the very beginning of this, he says, he, he credits Jesus with the transformation. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, that he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Paul recognizes that the source of his transformation is Jesus. Some of you know we've talked about this previously. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the story of Paul's conversion. You see, Paul was once known as a man named Saul, and Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. He was at the first martyrdom of the first Christian, and it said that Saul's goal in life 
was he was breathing out threats and he was seeking out those who had converted to Christianity and he wanted to put them in prison and he wanted to have them killed. That's what Paul's MO was. That's who he was. That's what he was interested in. That's what he felt like God had called him to do was to kill off Christianity. In Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul was on his way to Damascus, and he was on his way to Damascus because he'd heard that there were believers there, and he was on his way there to put them in prison. And it says on his way to Damascus to put believers in prison for believing in Jesus, it says that Jesus shows up. And Jesus meets Paul, and Paul has this supernatural experience where Jesus says, Paul, why are you you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus Christ. And it says, in that moment, Jesus saves Paul and he calls him to his service. I love this because Saul, now known as Paul, wasn't looking for Jesus when Jesus found him. Like, Saul wasn't on his way to a Bible study. Like, he wasn't on his way to church to go, let me figure out what this Jesus thing is about. He wasn't looking for Jesus in the way that we think we should be looking for Jesus. He was looking for Christians that he might kill them, and Jesus shows up, and he says, Saul, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to be mine. And he changes him in that instant. And Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of Christians, becomes the greatest missionary in the history of the world. 70% of the New Testament is written by this man who was met on the Damascus Road and changed by Jesus. And here's what I love about this. We, we talked about this a little bit last week, that there's no prerequisite to coming to faith. Like, Jesus didn't show up and say to Paul, Paul, I'd love to make you mine, but, but you've done so many bad things that I can't do that anymore. Like, I can't do it. I'd love to save you, but you're past, man. Too many things back there. I, I can't do that. That's not at all. Paul's past was of no consequence to Jesus arriving and saving him. And let me tell you this. If you don't get anything else out of this this morning, if you're not a believer in here and you've been wrestling with this kind of idea of, I don't know, I'd I, I really like to kind of maybe pursue this Jesus thing, but I've got this past, I've got this baggage, I've got this sin, Jesus isn't afraid of that. And there's no prerequisite this morning to you being changed by the grace of Jesus in much the same way that Paul is changed in Acts chapter 9. In Romans 10, Paul says very clearly that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's what we believe. That's how we believe salvation comes about. Notice that he doesn't say, if you get your life together, if you get all your things in order, if you stop drinking, if you stop cussing, if you stop smoking, if you stop doing all of these things, then you confess Jesus, he'll save you. No, 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 he just says, just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. There's no prerequisite to come into faith. Jesus wasn't concerned about Paul's past. Though Paul was formerly an enemy of God, Jesus in that moment makes him a son. And Paul says this. He goes on to say, although I was formerly a persecutor, blasphemer, insolent opponent, he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
Now, we hear the word ignorant, and we often think that that's a derogatory term, but the word ignorant just means not to know. It says, Paul says, I, I didn't know. It says, I didn't know. And Paul didn't know because he didn't believe. And Paul couldn't believe because of his sin nature. See, in Romans 1, he writes later that, um, that, those, that the sin in our life, we talked about last week, sin stains everything about us. And it keeps us from seeing God for who he really is, that every one of us has a sin nature and that our sin suppresses the truth about God. And that the only way for us to see God as he truly is is to have somebody deal with that sin nature. And that's why the gospel is so important because what Jesus does is he removes the sin from our lives so that we might see God rightly and pursue him rightly. But not only does sin suppress the truth, it also twists the truth so that sometimes we believe that even in our sin, we are serving God. You see, Paul believed on his way to Damascus to kill Christians that he was doing what God had told him to do. Because his sin nature twisted the truth in his heart. Um, These last two weeks, if you've followed at all the news, you've seen... um, the 21 Egyptian Christians beheaded next to the Mediterranean by a terrorist group known as ISIS. And if you were to ask these terrorists why they were doing this, they would tell you that they are doing it in the name of God. You see what sin does? Sin not only suppresses the truth, but it makes us believe that our sin is pleasing to God. Jesus told the disciples this. In John 16, Jesus told the disciples, he warned them. He said, one day there's coming a day where they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering his service to God. This is where Paul was. This is where Paul was. So deep in sin that he believed that murdering Christians was actually the way that he served God. And he says, even that deep, even that twisted, he received mercy. He received mercy. Paul doesn't say that his ignorance about God excuses his sin. In the same way that if you left here today and you drove 65 miles an hour down Cane Bay Boulevard, and a police officer pulls you over and says, you're speeding. And you said, well, I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. Sorry, that doesn't excuse the fact that there is a law that you are breaking. In much the same way, Paul says, just because I didn't know doesn't excuse the fact that I've sinned against a holy God. So his ignorance does not excuse God's wrath against his sin. However, his ignorance does also not disqualify him from receiving mercy. That God shows him mercy in this moment. Saul, persecutor, insolent opponent says they laid their coats at his feet while they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. And that was the man that God said, that's the one that's going to lead my church. So how should we pray when we see things like 21 Christians murdered by ISIS? I think we should pray that maybe the next Saul of Tarsus was holding the camera. source of transformation is Jesus, and there is no sin that the cross cannot forgive.
source of his transformation was Jesus, the means of his transformation. What's he say next? He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says the means by which Jesus saves him. So if Jesus is the source of his salvation, the source of his transformation, he says the means by which Jesus saves him is grace, not Paul's merit. Paul had not done anything at this point to merit Jesus changing him from persecutor, insolent opponent, to friend and son of God. What qualified Paul to be changed, to be transformed, to be made new was not his merit, but God's grace. He did not deserve to be forgiven. And in fact, he probably rightly deserved to be judged. But he says that the grace of God overflowed for him in Christ Jesus. And what is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. And he says that the undeserved favor of God overflowed for him in Christ Jesus. I love that picture of grace that overflows. Um, Several years ago, there was a um, painting that was submitted to an art gallery anonymously. It had no name and no artist attached to it. It was a painting of Niagara Falls. And I think I have a a painting of Niagara Falls. So the art gallery took it in and they kind of humorously named it More to Follow. It was just kind of a humorous take, not only on the anonymity of the painter, but also on the picture itself of Niagara Falls. More to follow. That for thousands of years, billions of gallons of water have spilled over Niagara Falls, have brought life to the communities below, and yet it still flows today. It still flows today as if it has never lost a drop, that there's still more water. And this is the picture that Paul gives us of grace. He says that grace overflows. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote this about grace. He said, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying the light and could indeed light up 10 worlds, just as 100,000 lights might be from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a 1,000 others learned, And the more he gives, the more he has. So is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of grace. So that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose one drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. James, the brother of Jesus, said that a different way in James 4, 6. He said, God gives more grace more grace. And it overflows. It overflowed for Paul. The undeserved favor of God. This was the purpose of Jesus' coming. Paul says this statement is trustworthy and, full, and deserves full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to offer grace, God's undeserved favor towards sinners. Jesus himself echoes this in the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, um, Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters into a city to preach the gospel. And he preaches. And then several people come together and they say, Jesus, we want you to stay here for a long time. We want you to stay with us and teach us more. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, for this is the reason that I was sent. In Luke 5, he speaks with the Pharisees. 
And he tells the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says very, um, very conclusively, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The purpose of his coming was so that we might receive God's grace for our sin, that we might be made right with a holy God. Jesus came so that sinners like Paul might be reconciled to God. Jesus lived the life that I couldn't live, and he died the death that I should have died, and he defeated the enemies that I couldn't defeat, sin and death, so that I might be reconciled with God if I would simply confess and believe. And the same is true for you. That's the good news this morning. That in Jesus, grace overflows for you, regardless of your past, regardless of how you came in here this morning. Paul tells us clearly, there's grace. If you'll confess, if you'll believe, if you'll trust, he'll make you new. And then Paul says this. It's pretty interesting that he says this. He says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am the foremost. Interesting. And and when I first read this, I I thought that it was kind of strange. I I thought that maybe it was a little bit of like hyperbole. Like like maybe Paul's just kind of sprucing this thing up a little bit. You know, like I'm looking at Paul and I'm going, okay, Here's what I know about Paul. Um, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, the books that we're in, are, are some of Paul's last letters. So by this time, Paul has done an incredible amount of things for the Lord. He's planted churches. He's been on missionary journeys. He's written several books of the Bible. And yet here's Paul saying, Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't say, of whom I was the foremost. Like, it's not past tense for Paul. Paul still sees himself presently as the greatest of all sinners. And so for me, I kind of look at that and go, come on, Paul. Really? Like, look at what you've done, and you still see yourself as the greatest of all sinners? You see, Paul recognizes something that, that that I hope we would recognize this morning, those of you who are believers in Christ. We should recognize this. That when Jesus gives us grace and when he saves us, as a believer of Christ, what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't make you sinless, right? Anybody here who's been a Christian for a long time, like when Jesus saved you, like you haven't sinned since? Anybody? All right, cool. Glad we're all on the same page. That's not what it does. I I love, I love... Not love, love's a strong word. I, I get a little bit kind of humored by um, the reasoning for, that people go, I don't, I don't go to church because all Christians, man, they're hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. They're all sinners. I'm going, yeah, like that, yeah, right, exactly. We're all still sinners. Like nobody comes to Jesus and then all of a sudden they just never sin again. That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus does for us is he doesn't make us sinless in this life, but you know what he does? He makes us guiltless. So I know that my sin now 
doesn't condemn me. 1 John 1.9 says, He who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him, but he who says that he sins and is faithful to confess his sins before the Father, the Father is faithful to forgive his sins. And so what Jesus does is he gives me something to do with my sin that I would take it before the Father that he might forgive it through Jesus' grace and kindness to me. Now, what this doesn't do is give me license to sin. I don't look at the grace that Jesus has given, that God has given me through Jesus and go, my sin's forgiven, let me live how I want. That just shows that I don't understand grace. But in that moment, if that grace drives me to begin to see the depth of my sin, that I am a greater sinner than I ever thought possible, and yet God's grace is larger and bigger and deeper than I could ever imagine. In that moment, it leads me to gratitude and humility that because of his grace, I might want to pursue righteousness in him. And Paul recognizes this. Now, this is a little backwards, right? This is a little bit backwards from the way that we think about growth. That as a believer in Christ, as I grow in maturity, that my dependence on the Father might grow stronger. That, that as I grow as a believer, I've been a believer now for 22 years, and, and every year, by God's grace, I pray that he would give me a deeper understanding of my sin that I might see a deeper level of my sinfulness because it's only when I see a deeper level of my sinfulness that I can see a deeper level of God's grace. And that's a little bit backwards from what we see. So I have a, um, I have a son who turns one this month. And right now, my son as a one-year-old is totally dependent on his mother and I for just about everything. Now, our hope is that by the time he's 20, 25, 30, that he will have moved out and that he will be independent of his mother and I. That he will have grown in his maturity and responsibility that he might be independent of his mother and I's caring for him. And that's the way that physical maturity works. We start off very dependent, and by the end of our life, we are independent. We are our own people. And my fear is that we have been deceived as believers. The same is true in our spiritual tracking. That as we get more mature and as we become Christians longer, that our dependence on God should decrease. I shouldn't have to struggle with this. I shouldn't have to ask God to help me with this. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I should be able to do this. And the reverse is actually true. And Paul sees that. Paul goes, the closer I get, the longer I'm a believer, the more I recognize how dependent I am on my Savior. And that if I don't have him, I don't have anything. We're Benjamin Button. We're aging backwards. And here at the end of Paul's life, Paul goes, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. And when he sees himself as the foremost of sinners, that Jesus has grace even for that, man, his view of God's grace is expansive. So let me say this to you, Christian believer in the room, let me challenge you this way. You want to experience 
more of God's grace in your life, ask that God begin to show you how great a sinner you still are. And then, when we may say, I am the chief of sinners, not my neighbor, not this guy, not this person, me, I'm the chief of sinners, we might see God's grace as it is truly and beautifully. What is the reason for Paul's transformation? So the source of Paul's transformation is Jesus. The means by which Jesus transforms him is grace. Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Paul says this, 16. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. I love that. I love that. Paul's talking about me. Paul's talking about you if you're a believer in Christ in this room. Paul's talking about you if you're not a believer in this room. Paul says, you know why God saved me? He saved me so that this morning you might know he can save you. He says, God showed me mercy for this reason. So that no one could say, I've gone too far. The cross is insufficient for my sin. That's beautiful. Paul says, if I can change, you can change. He says that he received mercy. Received mercy. Now, oftentimes we, we kind of lump mercy and grace together but they're really kind of different. I heard somebody say this this week, and I thought it was brilliant. Paul says that the means, that the source of his transformation is Jesus. The means of his transformation is grace, that he received God's undeserved favor. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. You and I, in our sin, deserve God's wrath. But in God's grace, he doesn't give us that. He gives us mercy. And Paul says, he gave me mercy. I found grace so that this morning you might know that you can too. This transformation in Paul leads him to celebration. Verse 17 is is kind of funny. Um, he, he walks through this. He talks about, here's the source of my transformation. I was once an insolent opponent. I was, I was once not looking for Jesus, but yet Jesus pursued me. And he changed me through his grace. And he changed me through his grace so that those who would come after me might know that he can change them through his grace as well. And then verse 17, he just bursts into song. I, I love that because... Paul, if we know anything about Paul, Paul is not a man given to song. Like if you read Paul, Paul is a theologian. He is a thinker. He is an academic. He is type A. He's not a guy that's just going to bust out singing a tune from Jersey Boys. Like that's not Paul. But yet here's Paul confronted anew with a transformation that has occurred in his life. And he sees it again. 
He sees the depths of his sin and the depths of God's grace and the sacrifice that Jesus has made on his behalf. And what does it cause this type A theologian academic to do? It calls him to sing out to God. And he says, verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Paul's transformation leads to celebration in his life. It leads to this celebration. He calls out to the Father. And I love what he says at the end. He says, the only God. He says, you're the, you're the only one that can do this. You're the only God that offers grace. Every other God that you're going to serve in every other religion says you've got to work your way to me. But it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that said that when we could not get to God, God came to us. Not because we deserved it, but because of his great mercy and love and grace that he's given to us in Christ Jesus. And that causes Paul to celebrate. And it should do the same for us. Christian, as you look back over your life, as you look back at the way that Jesus has transformed you by his grace, the salvation that he offered you regardless of your past, does that fill you with any joy at all? Does it fill you with any joy? Does it make you want to praise God for who he is, for what he's done to tell others about him? We've said this before. Listen, joy is the great motivator of mission. And so if you're not on mission, if you're not telling others about Jesus, if you're not finding it in yourself, this desire to praise and thank God in prayer, in corporate worship, through time, in the word, through evangelism, if you're not finding those things in your life and you can't figure out why, here's a diagnostic. Check your joy. Do you remember who you were and who Jesus has made you? Paul says, I've seen the depths of my sin. I'm the foremost of sinners, and God gave me mercy and grace, and it causes him to celebrate. Finally, Paul ends chapter one in much the same way that he started. The third point is confrontation. Paul ends chapter one much the way he started chapter one. Chapter, at the beginning of chapter one, he speaks to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor of a church in Ephesus, and Timothy is dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with those who are teaching things that are contrary to the gospel inside of his church. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, talking with him primarily about the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and how to deal with false teachers. And he says to Timothy at the end of this beautiful um, encouraging section where he says, God saved me so that others might know that they're saved. The, to the king of ages, immortally visible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And then at 18, he moves right into Timothy. He says, Timothy, I, in charge, I, I, I entrust you with this charge. He says, I'm entrusting this to you, but you would protect this. You've got to defend this truth. You've got to fight for this truth, that there are going to be those who attack this truth truth, not only from the outside of the church, but from the inside as well. 
And so he says to Timothy, you've got to be certain of these things. You've got to be in the word. You've got to ask the spirit to help you give you wisdom and discernment and courage and boldness. He says, because there are those who want to strike this message down, not only outside the church, but inside the church as well. He tells of two, he gives us two examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Most scholars believe that these men may have even been elders in the church, that they were teaching the church, and yet they were teaching false things. It says that Paul throws these men out because they were teaching a gospel that was not in accordance with the gospel that Paul had been given by Jesus. And he says that when we stray from this gospel of grace, he says it will shipwreck our faith. That's why he's so passionate about this. He says it will shipwreck our faith. And, and you don't have to look real far in our culture to see churches and pastors that have shipwrecked their faith. Right? Like you ain't got to look real hard. Like, like it's, you ain't got to go to like page five or six of your Google search to find a pastor or church that's failed. It's out there, man. And I would venture to say this, that I believe strongly that many churches that fail and many pastors that fail do so because they have compromised the gospel of grace in their life, in their teaching, in their churches. This gospel of free grace that we did not deserve favor, but God has given to us in Jesus. And that Jesus alone is the one who saves. At the Church of Cane Bay, we take very seriously the call to protect and defend the gospel of grace. So much so that our church was founded on the idea of the gospel, that Jesus alone is the one who provides salvation by his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, you and I might be reconciled to God. So much so that if our church ever becomes about anything else other than the gospel, we cease to be a church that's written into our bylaws. So if we as a church decide, you know what, we don't want to preach the gospel anymore, we'd rather dig wells in Africa. That's a good thing, but we're not going to be a church and do that. If we decide that, you know what, Not really sure this Bible, this 2,000-year-old document should really be the objective standard for our truth. We think that as a culture, we've probably progressed a little bit past that. And I don't think Paul really meant the things that he said. If we ever get to that point, as your eldership, we cease to be as a church. Because the gospel is what differentiates us. The gospel is what we protect. The gospel is what brings life into our body. And so let me just say this. There's a, let me just say this. So as your pastors, we've been called with a responsibility to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. But those of you who are teachers, those of you who teach pirate ship, those of you who teach battleship, those of you who teach baby rooms, those of you who are missional community leaders, you've been charged with the same charge. That you would work to protect the gospel, that you would grow in grace and truth, that you would guard your mind and your heart from being deceived, 
that you would study the word with vigor, that you would pursue righteousness through the Holy Spirit, that when you faithfully proclaim to your small group of people that meet in your home or your group of 10 three-year-olds in your class, that you would do so faithfully in a way that honors God, that protects the gospel of grace. We have a responsibility as a church to fight for the truth of God's word, to defend it against attacks from the outside and from the inside. Why is Paul so serious about this? Like, why does Paul tell Timothy, fight for this? Because only the gospel has the power to transform guilty sinners into guiltless saints. Only the gospel has that power. Only the gospel is that truth. Only the gospel brings that joy. Only the gospel brings that grace. And as believers, we must fight to maintain that it can be seen in our lives, in our churches. Would you pray with me? I don't know uh, this morning how the word is pressed upon your heart. Um, maybe you're not a believer in this room. Maybe this morning you don't even really know why you're here. Somebody invited you. Somebody brought you along. You saw a road sign. I don't know why you're here this morning. You might not even know. But here's what I believe. I believe that you're here this morning because Jesus is pursuing you. In much the same way that he pursued Paul. And maybe when you didn't even know that you were looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for you. And he brought you here this morning so that you might hear the good news that no one has gone too far. There is no sin that the cross of Christ cannot forgive. If the gospel can change an insolent opponent, an enemy of God like Saul of Tarsus into Paul, he can do the same for you. And so it's pretty easy this morning. You just believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that you want to follow him and you will be saved. So I'd love to talk with you at the end. That's you. I'll be in the back of the room. Love to just have a conversation with you about that. If you're a believer in here this morning, my hope is that you this week would see the depths of your sin, that you might find the depths and riches of God's grace. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word this morning. We're thankful that you are faithful even when we are faithless. Father, thankful for your grace that was undeserved. Thankful for your mercy, God that in love and kindness we might be reconciled to you. And so I pray this morning for those who are wrestling this morning with the idea of whether or not they've sinned too much or gone too far, that you can still love them and save them. And Father, I pray that this morning they would hear through the word and through your Holy Spirit a resounding yes. I pray for courage and boldness as they begin to work out what this means in their life. Pray for the believer in this room.
God who has been growing and feels separated from you, and maybe that's because we think that we should be growing independent of you as we mature. But Father, I pray that you would show us that real maturity in Christ means that our dependence on you is deepened every single day, that you would show us the depths of our sin, not so that we might find guilt or condemnation, but that we might see the richness of your grace. And God, when we see the richness of your grace, I pray that it would lead us to humility and gratitude and joy that might motivate the mission that we have to share Jesus with our community. We love you. We thank you for this call, for this responsibility, for Jesus who makes all of this possible. In his name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.